Welcome to Island Baptist Church. Today's sermon is Joel, the disaster of all disasters, part one. We are in the book of Joel. We looked at the first chapter last time. We're going to be a little bit in that first chapter this morning. We are, um, just as way of reminder, maybe you weren't here last week, Joel is uh, not unusual as far as the minor prophets go. It tends to be only one message, one theme. By the way, they pretty much are all the same theme. And... Um, that of an impending disaster, and Joel certainly doesn't leave us hanging when that comes to that. He pretty much spends his whole time on that. Joel is a prophet we know very little about, uh, other than the fact that we're pretty certain we, I don't know who we is, I, just, I listen to what they say, and then I include myself in the we. You know what I'm saying? It's, don't want to reinvent the wheel. you got too much scholarship out there. Uh, Joel, we say, we think, Joel is one of the oldest prophets in the sense of when he wrote, like he wrote ahead of Isaiah, ahead of Jeremiah, ahead of Daniel, ahead of Ezekiel, ahead of all these guys. He's, he's, his writings are more ancient than theirs, just in the order of things. And why isn't it that order in your Bible? Because we've divided them in weird ways, like I said, minor and major prophets and stuff like that. It has to do with the amount that they wrote, uh, not, not how important their writings were. And it's unfortunate that um, we've given them the label of minor and major because it's just simply not it. Uh, the minor prophets just tend to be shorter in length, and they've been, they've been classed to themselves in, in that respect. But I don't like that classification. I prefer a little bit of chron- chronology. Uh, so Joel is a book that we started with last time looking at, and we're making our way through the Old Testament, the highlight reel, right, of the Old Testament. Uh, speaking of a local disaster, and we looked at the parameters of what it meant, the, a bug invasion like locusts, and anybody from not from the Middle East, has no concept of what that could possibly be like. And he describes, and we read a scenario of something happening in 1915, just unimaginable devastation. Everything doesn't even have to be green. They strip the bark, they eat the twigs, they tunnel down into the heart of a palm tree and all the fronds fall off it. I mean, it's just an unbelievable, uh, uh, disastrous circumstance. And the, the picture that we're giving of this literal local invasion of bugs in the first chapter of Joel is actually just a template says it from the very beginning pay attention elders have you ever seen anything like this they of course the rhetorical answer is no he says so tell your children and have them tell their grandchildren and them their great-grandchildren because this is a template for a disaster that's not going to be local that's yet future and it's not going to be bugs it's going to be something far worse it's going to be Global and it's going to be catastrophic and it's going to be monumental and all these other things. And Joel, along with a majority of the Old Testament minor prophets, leave us or, or leave us with the idea and understanding that we should never forget that our world is on a collision course with God. Where's this world going? To a collision with God. It's going to be catastrophic. It's going to be global. It's going to be. Uh, culture and everything that we know ending that disaster, that collision, and Joel has absorbed the majority of, of the first chapter is just giving us an illustration, and the rest of it is explaining what that's going to be and and uh, how God's going to be in that. And so think about it. I mean, why is God going to judge the world? Because he has to stop this. So you're not even anywhere, none of us are anywhere close to being as righteous as of God, but if you had an opportunity, wouldn't you stop this? Wouldn't, wouldn't, you, wouldn't you put an end to this? He has to, or he can't call himself righteous. That end is coming. It is a collision. It's inevitable. 
Uh, the world is on a collision course with the Almighty. Mark it carefully, and these, these Old Testament writers don't let us forget it. And that collision is a topic of conversation. Like I said, a majority of the writings of the Old Testament to, to, to this effect. Uh, the prophecies of Jesus fall into two categories. Prophesying of his first coming in the Old Testament and the prophecies of his second coming in the Old Testament. If you've been with us when we were back in the book of Daniel, there's a ratio between those two. For every single prophecy of the first coming of Christ, and there's more than 300 of them in the, in the Old Testament, there are every single one of those, there are eight prophecies of his second coming. So the weight is very heavily towards the second coming of Jesus as opposed to the first coming of Jesus. And we pretty much are New Testament people. We talk about the first coming of Jesus all the time. And I would say the majority of your Bible does not talk about the first coming of Christ. It primarily talks about the second coming of Christ. The reality of Christ, definitely the whole Bible is about that. But the second coming of Christ as opposed to first coming of Christ is, is more heavily weighted. So we might be tempted to think that the judging of the world is on a higher priority than the forgiving of the world. Like God prefers to judge... But, you know, if he can't judge you, well, then I guess he could forgive you, you know, kind of thing. No, don't mistake the ratio for how God's heart actually is and actually isn't true. And there are several reasons why, clearly true, that God prefers to love and forgive massively more than he prefers to judge. It doesn't mean it's going to stop his judgment, but it does mean uh, what he prefers here. For instance, the weight of the Bible, these, these prophecies, we have these Old Testament prophets are more than balanced by 27 books in the New Testament that speak of God's love for us. Isn't that right? Four, four, four books that just simply speak of the life of Christ. And even when we get to the book of Revelation, which of course is a book of judgment, but even in that book, we have all tribes and tongues and languages, countless number of people coming to faith in Christ. Even the last days are going to be days of redemption because that is the heart of God. You would think he would just call it off and, okay, nobody saved past this because I'm just so ticked. No, God holds out hope to the very end. How do you know when a person is no longer able to be reached for Christ? When we're having their funeral. Not until then. God holds out hope and love. He does. He prefers not to judge. So you get 27 books. The weight of the Bible, if you will, is balanced by that. Never forget, Jesus came, what does it say there? To forgive, right? For God so loved the world. In this way, that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's his heart. That's his desire. That you believe on the son and have eternal life. That you not perish. That you not get the wrath that is coming. There is going to be a collision. He doesn't want you in it. He wants you out of it. For God did not send his son the first time into the world to condemn the world. But that the world through him might be saved. Now, the second coming, that will not be true. Second coming is diametrically different than that. It's going to be headed a different way. But it's not until God has exhausted every single possibility of a person coming to faith in him and being rescued from that collision that's coming. Collision is inevitable. It definitely is. So, so the weight of the Bible, in the sense, is, is, is balanced, if you will, between the love of God. And, and, and I hear this, and I've heard this from people who who need to study their Bibles better. But it seems like the God of the Old Testament, they'll say, is a God of judgment, and the God of the New Testament is a God of love. Like they're two different gods. And um, like I said, do your homework, because you're going to find out that the one and the same God. If, if he didn't love you, why would he even tell you that there's coming a collision? If he didn't, didn't love you, why, didn't he, why would he even tell you there's going to be a judgment? Why not just stand back, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, just watch the whole thing go down? Let's see how many fall off into hell today. That's not who he is. 
That's not the way he runs. He warns us and warns us and warns us and preaches to us and writes books and sends it to us. And the Old Testament was a complete copy for 400 years before the New Testament comes. Because we need to hear the bad news or the good news won't make sense. And so he lays it out exactly like that. So, so the way to the Bible, the argument of that, and then the argument of reason simply, simply just works the same way. God's desire is to save us as over against his drive to prove himself righteous by judging us. So if, if I'm a doctor and you're a patient and you come to me with issues and I see automatically that you have a disease and I spend the correct amount of time and I do the correct amount of research to prove to you to have that disease, that you got it, how long do I need to talk to you about the cure? So I spend weeks and months leveling out the ground here, making sure you understand that you're sick. How, how many months or weeks or days or minutes do I need to say, nevertheless, there is a cure, right? So if you want to say God spends way too much time about judgment, listen, it's because we're hard to convince about the disease. It's, it's, it, we're thick. We're way too thick. God prefers to forgive. He prefers to forgive, yet he knows how thick we really are. And again, why? Just, just the fact that he tells us shows us that he loves us. Just the fact that he says, listen, there's coming a collision. I don't want you to be a part of it. He loves you. He really does. He's not obligated in any of those things, but he certainly does it. So back, back to the book of Joel. The book of Joel is consumed, it seems, with this whole judgment of God that's impending and pictured by chapter 1 of this in, invasion of locusts. And so let's keep reading here because, like I said, it's just, a, it's just a template for what's coming called the day of the Lord. Anybody use, we use that terminology, don't we? Back in my day, are we talking about 24 hours? Talking about a month, what are we talking about? Back in your day, back in the day, we use that one too. I never really understood that one, the day, what is that? Back in my day, we did such and such. Back, well, oh, he had his day, such about this or that. What is that talking about? The, when, when they were the best, you know, when, when they were accepted, when they were all that they hoped to be or all that they thought they, they could be. Well, listen, God, God is going to have his day. It's not going to be 24 hours. He's going to have his day, and it's going to start off bad before it ever gets good. Alas, verse 15 of chapter 1. For the day, it says, the day, not 24 hours. The day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Chapter 2, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As dawn spreads over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There have never been anything like it, nor will there ever be again until after the years for many generations. This invasion that's coming, but it's not going to be crickets. It's not going to be grasshoppers or something far worse, even as bad as those things could be to plants. But notice, keep going in verse 4. Their appearance, it says is like the appearance of horses, like the war horses, it says. So they run with the noise as of chariots. They leap on the tops of mountains like crackling of flame of the fire, consuming the stubble, like mighty people arranged for battle. But they're not people. What are they? Before them, the people are in anguish and faces turn pale and they run like mighty men, these soldiers do, and they climb on the wall like soldiers and they each march in line and nor do they deviate from their paths and they do not crowd each other and they march everyone in his path and they burst through the defenses. They do not break ranks. They rush on the city. They run on the wall. They climb on the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. 
Sounds bad, because it is. Before them, the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, the stars lose their brightness, the, the Lord utters his voice before his army. Notice it's God's doing, it's God bringing about judgment. Surely his camp is very great. Mm, wow, sorry. For strong is he who carries out his word, and the day of the Lord is indeed great, very awesome, and who can endure it? And what a great question, right? So, so this, this bug army that Joel's day is foreshadowing is of an army of bug-like creatures, if you will, in chapter 2, that will, if you will, not respond well to bug spray, let's just say. And which brings us straight over to the New Testament, Revelation chapter 9, if you want to know what this is, the markings are not there. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. Chapter, Revelation quite often brings up these end time scenarios, but it just jumps from one thing to another thing to another thing to another thing because it assumes you already know that God's already spoken about this stuff. Where did he speak about bug armies? He already did it in Joel. He expects you're already in on that. You've already read the Old Testament. The Old Testament has been around for 400 years before a New Testament was ever written. So when you get to Revelation, you're like, oh yeah, I've heard that one. But it's not typical bugs. Revelation 9, verses 1 through 8. We saw that it wasn't typical bugs there in Joel. The fifth angel, it says, blew his trumpet. And I saw a star that had fallen from heaven. Now stars, when they're used figuratively, always refer to angels. So if I got an angel that falls from heaven, is it a good one or is it a bad one? I'm thinking bad. Fall isn't good. Satan fell from heaven, right? This is not him, but this is one of his. And he does bad stuff. Notice the key of the shaft of the abyss was given to him. That's the center of the earth. And, and he opened the shaft of the abyss and smoke came up and out of the smoke locusts, it says, upon the earth. And power was given to them like the power of scorpions. Now, wait a minute. We don't have regular locusts now. I don't know if you've ever been around grasshoppers. That's all a locust is, a flying grasshopper. And they come in massive hordes. They don't bite or sting nothing. The only time I've ever been hurt, hurt by a locust is riding in the back of a truck. And I stuck my head up over the cab at about 55 and I got hit by a grasshopper. I think it was about right there. And that smarted. But these guys are not like that. They have the sting of scorpions, it says. The power of scorpions to have on the earth. And they were told not, notice, to harm the grass. Not a regular locust of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only people who do not have God's seal on their foreheads. Wow. So in the same way that the locusts were munching stuff in the book of Joel, in a literal sense, all the green stuff, these guys are going to be munching people? Now read it for yourselves. Keep going. Like I said, all the way to verse, verse 8. They were not permitted, notice, to kill them, but they were, apparently they could have, but they couldn't. But for five months, it says they tormented them, and they tormented cause was caused by like a scorpion when it strikes a man. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. I don't know why. Just what it says. And, and they will long, it says, to die, but death will flee from them. And the appearance of this locust, notice the same description we have in, in Joel. The locusts were like horses equipped for battle. Something like a gold crown was on their heads. Their faces were like men's faces they had hair like women's hair and their teeth were like lion's teeth wow what is that 
Well, um, and that's the first question, really. The immediate dilemma is, what does this really mean? And by the way, artists' depictions of these things are rampant all over the Internet, and I don't necessarily endorse any one of these. I just think they're interesting. I'm going to put them up there for you because they'll keep you awake. <laughs> you know, like a lion, right, with a, f with a stinger and, and wings. Uh, and then this one is kind of gets the women's hair thing in it, sort of. These are artist depictions. These are not from the Bible. God didn't send us a picture. He did describe something for us. Um, here's another one, you know, with the whole lines and the wings and the sting and the tail and all that. And this one's more like, more locust-like. I mean, if I was drawing something, it'd probably be like that if it was me. No better than what they drew, though, because I don't know. I don't have any pictures for you. These are not beamed down from heaven or anything like that. But I'm going to leave that one on the screen for you just because, it's, because it'll keep you awake. <laughs> so, so here's the dilemma. The dilemma is, as we read Joel and we read the book of Revelation, the dilemma is immediately, is this real? I mean, is this really going to, like, real going to happen? Or is this some kind of figurative thing? Is it an allegorical thing? We're to read into this, you know, people are going to be persecuted in their souls, and it's going to seem like a scorpion, and it's not literal things like this. Is that the way we're supposed to read it? And, and let me just say this, everybody's free to think as they want to. And the way we operate as a church, and the way I church, believe churches ought to operate is that this is not a check your brain at the door. Everybody's got a Bible. You're capable of thinking. Even if you're asleep, you're still capable of thinking. You're responsible for your own personal theology before God. Everyone here, everybody get on that? I'm also, as a pastor's church, responsible to teach you as I feel like God leads me, as he's educated me, as he's taught me, as he's led me by the Holy Spirit. That's my responsibility. You may disagree with me, and that's, that's cool. But, but you're not the pastor of this church, and I am. So I get to talk. And you do not, because we just don't have time. And, um, and I have done a tr tremendous amount of study and, and do my best to stay on top of things, as you would expect. I mean, a person can stand up and open the Word of God and then not have as a goal of his life to be an expert in what it says. I wouldn't want to listen to him. So, so let's get back to this. So everyone is free to think as they want, but for me, the understanding of this is walled in by two primary factors um, that I cannot overlook. And I will not be able to overlook. I've been at it for a long time. Number one factor is the factor of precedence. We've talked about this before. If you've been with us through the book of Daniel, you know where I stand on these things. Precedence is significant. It's important. It's important for our understanding because we're talking about future things, future events, right? Future prophecies of things we can't see. We're all sitting here, not in the future, looking into the future, saying, what's it going to be like? And you say, I don't know. I think it's like this. I say, I don't know. It's going to think it's like that. So, so we need, we need, I think we need to be hemmed in by the, by the factor of precedence. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is this, is that when God predicted through the same Old Testament prophets, by the way, not necessarily Joel, but a majority of the Old Testament prophets, when God predicted through those prophets Jesus' first coming, he used, in some ways, similar fantastical descriptions and language. By the way, fantastical descriptions and language that were not taken seriously by the Jews or anyone else that Jesus came to. They were not taken seriously, and read this and read it carefully. They were not taken literally. And every time it was a mistake. For instance, these are fantastical things, don't you agree? That he would be virgin born. Do virgins have babies? Your daughter comes home and says, I'm pregnant, but I haven't been with anyone? Right. Sure, sweetie. Tell me another lie. Because virgins don't have babies. But one did. So, so literally, when the Jews read Isaiah 7, verse 14, they did not read it literally. It was a mistake. It was fantastical, but it was literally true. 
And again, it says that he would be killed by crucifixion. Psalm 22 goes into great detail about what it meant to be hung on a cross and the suffering and the anguish and how the, the, the nails would be driven through his hands and through his feet. And this is some 400 years, the writer writes this, before crucifixion is ever invented by the Persians and then made better by the Romans. So, so they didn't believe, first of all, they didn't believe their Messiah would even die, much less be crucified. It can't be literal was their confusion, was their conclusion. Were they wrong or were they right? They were definitely wrong. Savior was killed and by crucifixion. And it also says in their, in their book, the Old Testament, in their prophets, that he would be sacrificed like a lamb to pay for his people's sins. Isaiah 53, right? That can't be literal, right? Oh, it most definitely was. In fact, the, 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 the non-literal was the lamb. The picture was the lamb. The reality was Christ who shed his blood. We're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper here. Juice that represents his literal blood that he shed for us and broken bread that represents his literal body that was broken for us. It was literally broken. His blood was literally shed. And these things are the things that come between us and God's judgment. They were all literal. The Jews missed it. And, and that also, that, that it would be God himself who was sacrificing his own son. The picture we have of Abraham and Isaac, what, Ibra, what Abraham was asked to do but prevented to do. God actually did. God, in place of judging us, judged his own son. Yeah, he did it. And then, of course, they couldn't get the whole concept of literal, of literal death of their Messiah, much less his resurrection, but their book does prophesy it. And three days, it also prophesies. Was he literally resurrected or was it some figment of our imagination? It was all literal, wasn't it? Fantastical language that was not taken literal, and they were 100% mistaken. So, like I said, with precedent, we come to the second coming of Christ and the prophecies about him. And the same prophets, the self-same ones, speaking the same kind of fantastical language, I, I think a... I think a a demonic locust horde is pretty fantastical. I don't know about you. It just ranks up there pretty high with me. Speaking the same language, like demonic locust horde, like one world ruler who's, who's going to cause uh, global death and destruction, uh, is going to cause everyone to receive a mark upon their hand or their forehead, uh, that he's going to be bringing forces together to fight Jesus, as crazy as that is. And the result of that war, called we call it Armageddon, is going to be a bloodbath unlike the world's ever, ever, ever seen. And then from that point on, Jesus is going to be reigning from Jerusalem, literal reign upon the earth for a thousand straight years. We read that as fantastical. Okay. Where's your precedent? Here's the word. They say, well, those things aren't literally true. And forgive me for being stupid, but my answer is, why can't they be? Those, those things are, are uh, uh, because they can't be. You want to know what the, that's the real answer, by the way. The real answer, the only answer I've really gotten from anyone that I say those things can't be literally true is because they say they can't be. The same, just like the, my answer to them is just like the virgin birth. Just like the crucifixion of the Messiah and his resurrection three days later. Oh, I'm not talking about that. Those are literal. Okay, so then what's your precedent for saying these other things are not? I don't find it. I'm just not that smart. Forgive me. I hope you will. Those, those things are symbolic, they say, and allegorical. And I would say, says who? Says who? I wish they were. Because, wow. But so the, the factor of precedent is heavy. It should weigh heavy on us. And then also the factor of intelligence or the lack thereof. So, so if 
if, if they aren't literal and true as they are written and God's saying what he means and means what he says, and look, everybody look at me for a second. If they're not true, literally, and God's saying what he means and means what he says, then they can mean almost anything. Like, you can have your opinion, I can have my opinion, we can have all these. I'm not saying we can't have these opinions. I'm just saying we can't all be right. We can all be wrong, can't we? I disagree with you, disagree with me, we disagree, 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 disagree. We can be 100% wrong. We can't all be right. We can't. There can only be one right. There can only be one way it can be right. I don't necessarily think, maybe I have it, maybe I don't. You better hope I do. But, 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 but even if I don't, right, we're, we're responsible before God. There is only one right way to interpret this. So, so intellectually, uh, from the factor of intelligence, if they're not literal, God's saying what he means, it means what he says, even as fantastical as it is, then it can be anything we want it to be. We're limited only to as crazy as what well, we can, can be helicopters. We don't know. I've heard of that said in there. So, so, and we come up with all these conclusions, for instance, that, that they were fulfilled in when they can be whatever we want them to be. They can be fulfilled in the Rome, emperors, Rome of, the emperors of Rome. They can be fulfilled in, in the Crusades. They can be fulfilled, as many think, by Hitler in World War II. They can be fulfilled by the rise of communism. I don't know how much y'all were taught in school. I was always taught the worst thing that ever happened this past century was, of course, the Holocaust and Hitler. Guys, and, and it was terrible. But have you ever read the history of communism? Socialism? United States, USSR is United Soviet Socialist Republic. We've got a huge movement of socialism going on in our world today, how important and great that is. Have you read the history of socialism? It's not a political platform, by the way. This is a non-political statement. I'm not representing anybody political, just so you know, because I'm not political at all. But socialism, have you seen what it's done? How, how many, you, you, think, you think the Nazis, by the way, they were also socialists. That's what the Nazi party was. Uh, but, <laughs> forgive me. USSR killed 60 million people under Stalin. Mao Zedong, another 60 million. And that was the big story of this past century. Was it not? Anyway, that's, that's a total aside, non-political statement. I'm not saying anything political because I'm not political. I'm not allowed to say anything political because this isn't a political arena. So, so we make all these things, the rise of communism and all this stuff into, oh, it might be that. Maybe it's the communists, right? There we go. Socialism. I'm pretty close to that. I'm calling it that if we're going to do that. So, so there, there's not a literal day of the Lord that, that is unprecedented and unmistakable. It's not literal. And there's no literal antichrist and no literal demonic locust horror, as weird as that is. And there's no mark of the beast and no literal reign of Christ on the earth for a thousand years. If those things are not true, then it can be whatever we want it to be. Whatever we can come up with. We're not limited at all to nothing, to as weird as we want it to go. And you may be intelligent enough to come up with how it works. And I will just tell you for sure that I am not. I am not any more sophisticated than just to simply take it as it says, as tough as it is to swallow. And I would suggest to you, the reasons why I'm suggesting to you that my, my, what holds me back. I mean, I just failed to find anywhere in the past, biblically, where God has left conclusions and diagnoses up to us. I failed to find it. I failed to find any place where God doesn't just come out and say what he's going to say. Take or leave it. 
That's the way he deals with it in most cases. It seems illogical to me, if logic has anything to do with it. It seems illogical to me that a shepherd would leave so much undisclosed and uncertain and indiscernible that a shepherd would leave so much to his sheep to figure out. It just doesn't make sense to me. It makes more sense to me that a shepherd dealing with dumb sheep, and that is what we are, would just kind of say it as it's going to go because we're so thick otherwise. Or, or that maybe, maybe here's a suggestion. Forgive me also. You've been forgiving me already. Maybe we should change the title of Revelation to Consternation then. If it just isn't. If it just can't be clear. And we can all have these weird, wild opinions. So, so, and some say, by the way, and just for the sake of argument, some say, well, well, Jesus spoke in parables when he walked on the earth. And yes, he definitely did. In fact, I love these parables. He, he walked on the earth and he spoke in parables to the average person, didn't understand. Yeah, they didn't. And then what did he do? Then he took his disciples aside and said, here's how it works. So to those who believed him and followed him and loved him, he explained himself. Isn't that right? And he left the ones who, why did he, why did he speak to them in parables? Do you remember? Because he says of their unbelief so that hearing they would not hear and seeing they would not see. Yeah, there is a consequence for that. You're going to not believe? Or then you're going to be in the dark. In fact, you're already there. But, but for those who believe, right, he comes in to the light. It was not hidden. It was hidden definitely to the masses, but it was revealed to those who loved him and followed him. And yet we're going to claim that so much of the scriptures can't be understood or can't be taken literally. I'm just not with it. Sorry. I'm just not. I'm, I'm of those, in case you don't know, of just let it say what it says. I believe God says what he means and means what he says, even as weird as it is. I don't plan to be there, by the way. I hope you're not. But I'm, I'm of the, the experience, I should say, the, the position as I study the scriptures that we just need to let it say what it says. We just need to let it say what it says. And I'm also of the experience that when we do, sorry, I can't control that volume thing there. When we do, when it wakes you up though. When we do, God does amazing things in the lives of people. Here's a story I read recently. There was a young man, you know, when you go to university, you're going to the dorms, you're, you're on a lotto system. You basically just draw, you know, the person you get. I mean, you put in certain things about yourself, and I'm a decent person, and I don't like partying or whatever, and I would like to get a person like that, but there's so many other things about them that you can't pick. And so this Christian young man, moral young man, got a very other religious, moral young man also as a roommate who was, he was a devout Christian. This young man was a devout Muslim. And they were living in the same room together for the next year. And he was like, wow, I don't know how this is going to work. Well, it turns out they struck up a friendship and they were getting along just fine. Of course, the you know, obvious factor was that they were very different in their belief systems. And the Christian young man brought up to the Muslim young man, hey, I, have you ever, you know, I know we're getting along well, but I know that we're also, we clash on the area of what we believe. And he said, I wonder, have you ever read the Bible? And he says, no, I have not. He says, have you ever read the Koran? He says, you know, no, I have not. And so the Christian young man said to me, he says, listen, I'll make you a deal. He says, every other week we'll alternate together reading each other's texts. He said, well, one week read the Koran, the next week we'll read the Bible together and we can do it until we're sick of it or until it doesn't work out. We don't want to do, do that anymore. And so he just made that proposition. The guy was totally happy. He says, I would love to do that. Let's do that. And so they started with the Koran and then we went to the Bible and back and forth, back and forth, weeks and weeks. Six months later, the Muslim young man accepts Christ as a personal savior. 
comes to believe by the word of God that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God and accepts him as his personal Savior. This is an absolute true story. And then they continue to be good friends and they continue to be roommates. And the, the, the young man, um, the Muslim young man, one, one time comes barreling in months later into the dorm room, kind of mad. And he says, listen, you've tricked me, he says. He says, I don't know what you're talking about, sitting on the bed. He says, you, you tricked me. He says, what do you mean? He says, well, you, you had us read both texts, my Koran and your Bible. And he says, I was in a Bible study today. This young man had gotten into a church. He'd gotten baptized. He was just getting into the study of the scriptures, just loving his new faith in Christ. And came across the verse in, in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, where it says, the word of God is living and active. He says, you knew it was. <laughs> he says, Yes, I did. He says, so what, are you going to hate me for now, for the rest of your life? He says, no, I'm not going to do that. But he says, it was unfair to begin with. He says, yes, it was. <laughs> it most certainly is. We let the word God be what it is. And not, not add it, you know, not, we, can't, we have to interpret it. We have to understand it. We have to come to our own conclusions. We have to stand before God before those conclusions. We do. But I think mostly we need to just let it say what it says. Let it be what it is. It's the word of God that brings people to faith. It's the word of God that changes lives. It's the word of God that's brought us, brought you here, hasn't it? Me too. Let's pray together. God, I thank you that you have given us your word. You didn't have to do that. Everything is a sovereign decision of yours. You didn't have to send your son. You didn't have to give us your word. You didn't have to warn us ahead of time that a collision is coming. But you have done all this, God, basically, bottom line, because you're a God who loves and you desire that we be with you. You desire that we have the bliss and the peace of what it means to be in a relationship with you, not just now, but forever and ever. God, I thank you that you aren't going to let this keep going, that you are going to judge. I thank you that however and whatever way you're going to do it, it's going to be thorough. It's going to be right. You're going to be righteous when you do it. And God, we look forward to the day when righteousness indeed will reign. God, I thank you that you have offered to us your son, Jesus, as a path of forgiveness, the only path that whoever believes in him will not perish. Collision's not for them. They will have everlasting life. Thank you, God, for doing that for us. God, I pray you'd move in our hearts today, that we would just allow you to be who you are, say what you say, change lives as you desire. We trust you, God, and we trust our time together with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptist.org.